Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Dr. Kristen Pugh. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, I get to say that. I, I don't know if I'll say it every time. You can let me know. But <laughs> as as like only the second episode since you've got your PhD, I feel like it was it was 100% necessary. <laughs> Yeah, I finally uh, like have clicked a box on a form, <laughs> so I feel like it's real now. Yes. Okay, well, I'll continue to introduce this podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, this is about ethical consumption. Each episode, we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption, and then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. This episode, we're going to be talking about the banking industry, uh, and I, I mean... The banking industry is so royally evil. I, I don't know what uh, <laughs> aspects Kristen <laughs> decided to focus on, and I'm excited to to learn. Like, we could have just done a whole episode on the 2008 financial collapse, uh, or the Panama Papers, or I, I, I don't know, like, the way that they invest in guns and oil all the time. What did you decide <laughs> to do? Yeah, so I decided um, I'm tentatively calling this episode Ethical Money, so apologies to future you if we change that. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I thought what we'd do is sort of talk about why does the banking industry have problems, um, what is ethical finance, and what are some ways that you can sort of have more ethical, um, pick like a banking system that's more ethical, find a financial advisor that's more ethical, things like that. Um, as you alluded to before, like we could really go on on this topic for ages. I'm not even going to talk about the financial crisis, but yeah, predatory lending, like CDCs, y'all watch the big short, it fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Banking needs a lot more regulation than it has. So we're, we're not going to talk about that bit of it too much. It's going to be more about like, um, what does your money do when it's sort of sitting in an account and how can you make that be more ethical? Oh, good, because I was looking into that just before we started recording, and it was making me really frustrated. <laughs> I was like, I don't understand money. I don't have any of it, so it's fine. Like, I don't. It's not like I'm struggling to decide which mutual funds to invest in. But I found out recently, like an hour ago, that you can invest in ethical ones, I guess. I don't know. I don't understand mutual funds. Yeah, I don't understand. I mean, this was like really hard to research for me because I think it was sort of similar to the tea episode in that I came in knowing not a lot. But banking is so much harder because everything is like hidden behind this like really technical jargon. And so understanding um, which sort of financial products I should focus on, how to explain it in an accessible way, like how do you cut through the mumbo jumbo and just get the information that matters to people? That was really hard. But hopefully I have a structure that works. Um, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so I'll start with just an overview of um, why do an episode on banking. So ethical consumption is, is, it's about bringing your values more clearly into how you spend your money. So that's one aspect of how you want like to, to live a valued life, if that's something that you're trying to do. But like, what about the money that you're not spending, Right it can kind of seem like the money that you have in a bank account is just sitting there. And so like, you're not doing anything with it. So certainly there wouldn't be any ethical implications. But the reality is that the money you have deposited in a savings account is actually doing a whole bunch of work all over the world to finance all kinds of other things. So 
Where you put your money and what happens to it while it's there is really important uh, from an ethical perspective. Banks and other financial institutions, they essentially take uh, money and they invest it elsewhere with the hope of getting a rate of return so that they can pay interest to customers, they can provide dividends to their shareholders, um, and generally can like be profit-making money bags, right? That's, that's what a bank does fundamentally. That's a role that's really important uh, because people and organizations need to be able to access capital in order to be able to invest in stuff that like improves productivity, you know, could be some kind of machine that might make a business work better, could be a company that's trying to expand into a new location and needs to buy a new warehouse, could be a person buying a mortgage, right? Like needs to get a loan for their the house that they're buying. Um, so all of those things are like really useful things that the financial sector does. Like if we exist in a capitalist society, you can't do that without banks and other financial institutions. They're sort of like the the glue that like keeps everything together, you know? So that's a really important service. It's indispensable in a capitalist society. I don't mean that as a moral statement. It's just like if if we're in a society where you get resources through transacting with money, like you can't you can't do that any other way. Banks are like one of the most essential parts of our society. So because finance carries out this really essential role um, for effectively everything, it makes the ethical implications of banking like really fucked, right? Because um, these institutions are potentially um, ethically culpable for a range of ethical problems in basically every industry and covering every aspect of morality you can possibly think about. <laughs> so... It's a big topic, big topic. Yeah, I titled this section Mo Money, Mo Problems. Uh, <laughs> so um, it, there's another thing that's kind of at the root of the ethical issues with banking, though. Because um, financial institutions manage other people's money, they have a fiduciary duty to be responsible in how they use it, right? So they're, they're constrained by our legal system to make sure that they're responsibly handling people's money when they're investing it, right? And like, are they always great at it? No. Are the rules stringent enough? Probably not. But like in general, those protections are super important to make sure that like they're not just sort of like willy-nilly ruining people's retirements, right? Things like that. Um, so that generally means that financial institutions are going to prioritize seeking a rate of return on the investments that they're doing. Um, and depending on what like financial instruments you're doing, that might be like a super high but risky rate of return, or it might be sort of like a lower rate of return, but one that's like pretty dependable, you know, it just depends on what the instrument is. But either way, um, these like institutions are attempting to essentially like, like they're just trying to make more money off of it, right? Um, so they're trying to maximize the return that they're getting. They're not necessarily thinking about what ethical considerations are going into the investments. They're picking them primarily on financial grounds. And in part, that's because they're like commercial entities, but in part, it's also because they have a duty to their customers to sort of protect their money, right? So it's not like, I don't want to paint banks as these like cartoonishly evil groups. Um, they can sometimes do cartoonishly evil things, as we'll see, but there, there is like a reason that these institutions push for financial returns and sometimes at the expense of ethics. And like, it's important to bear in mind that there are human costs to that too. You'll, you'll see that that kind of plays itself out in the debates that are caused um, on ethics. 
Some people argue, though, that financial institutions could achieve a better balance um, so that ethical practices are sort of brought into decision making in a more central way. I think that's a pretty fair argument. We'll look at a bunch of the different campaigns that um, address that. Another thing that sort of makes it really difficult for banks to be ethical is that banks and other financial institutions are one step removed from most ethical harms, right? So if you're looking at, I mean, we can take the clothing industry as an example, right? If you're looking at how shirt, like a a shirt company, um, how their ethics are done, you kind of have a tangible link, right? Because people buy a physical shirt um, that's connected to like a physical supply chain process, right? It's really easy to make the argument to the public that like, if you're buying a shirt from X company that's made in a sweatshop, like that's a bad thing and they're responsible for it. Um, It can sometimes be harder to make that argument with banks because banks sort of have like these sometimes quite dispersed um, investment portfolios that are like in a bunch of places all over the world at any given time. So like there is a real question of like how culpable are they for like this tiny investment or, or, or others, right? But at the same time, these are massive sums of money in a lot of cases and they can make a huge difference in terms of like whether industries that people might see as evil or practices that people might see as bad stop or not. Anyway, uh, that was a a whole thing. But I think that's important to set the context because we're going to talk a lot more about specifics. um, And I I do think that like ethical money is a particular issue because money is sort of like this, it's this like transactional thing. It's it's kind of a commodity, but it's also kind of not, you know. So it would be really impossible to develop a comprehensive list of all the ethical concerns um, with financial institutions just because of how it touches everything. But I do think it's useful to talk about some of the issues that are the most common targets for consumer pressure. We're going to talk in the next section about some environmental, social, and governance problems that are associated with the financial sector. Then after that, we're going to talk about what ethical finance is, some of the most common forms that it takes, and debates about ethical finance. And then at the end, we'll talk about like how you can bring ethics into your financial decisions. So when you think about the environment and uh, problems with banks, uh, is there like any cause that comes to your mind particularly? Nothing specific. I, I am very, very uninformed on this topic, but I would imagine any time a bank invests in oil and gas, which is a really safe investment, because you were talking about, oh, sometimes they invest in things just because it's safe and you know you're going to get a return on it. And I think, mm, oil and gas or coal. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, so that's exactly the biggest, um, probably the biggest campaign linking banking to the environment is to do with climate change and um, specifically fossil fuel industries. So banks um, will often invest in industries that are linked not only to um, some of the biggest climate change culprits, but also to um, other practices that cause environmental damage. So this can be conservation or pollution or other things like that as well. Most of the time, though, as you noted, the attention goes to climate change. Um, here's a stat that I thought was fucked. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Do you remember that big, um, big climate agreement that, um, was signed in Paris in 2015? Like oh, yes. the thing that Trump pulled out of, but like every other country in the world is a part of. Uh, yes. Well, the <laughs> thing that maybe Joe Biden will be rejoining now that, well, we'll see. There's a lot of time between now and January. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Anyway, so since that happened in 2015, 
Just in that period between 2015 and now, banks have provided $2.7 trillion in financing to the fossil fuels industry. Oh, that's a bad look, guys. (laughs) Yeah, it's not great. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So $2.7 trillion would be like a tenth of the American economy as a whole. Cool. Cool, 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 cool. So like 10% of the entire American economy had like that amount of money has gone into financing the fossil fuels industry just in the last like five years. Um, So... The Rainforest Action Network, for anyone that's interested, it produces a fossil fuel finance report. And I'd really encourage people to like go on the website. We'll, we'll link to it in the research notes um, and to look for your bank on their list because um, they have some graphics about like who is providing the most funding to fossil fuel supporting to fossil fuel um, producers. The top four on their list uh, are J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citibank, and Bank of America. So if you bank with any of those companies, um, I mean, like all of them do, but <laughs> these are the worst ones, uh, <laughs> unless you're with a credit union. Did you see any Canadian banks on that list? How far down do you have to go before you find a Canadian bank? Yeah, you know, I did. I'll, I'll go to the website now because it's probably worth mentioning. TD. TD's like right near the top there. Oh, RBC's even higher. Uh, So (laughs) you know how my list ended off with Bank of America as the fourth one? Uh, RBC's the fifth one. So non-Canadian listeners, it's the Royal Bank of Canada. Uh, It's a big bank. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I was like, hmm, the top four are American. How much farther down before you get to a Canadian? Number five. Number five. Gotcha. Gotcha. Literally the next one. And then like there's two other companies um, and then TD, which is another Canadian bank. And then one more and then Scotiabank, which is like the third of five big Canadian banks. Like, Yeah, I th- well, I thought so. I mean, our whole economy is driven by oil and gas, so it's a safe investment for them. Yeah, literally, literally all of Canada's top five banks are on like or high up on this list. <laughs> I mean, we'll get to this more when we talk about alternatives to the big banks. So... There is a movement uh, to divest from fossil fuels, um, and basically the aim is to address climate change by convincing financial institutions and institutional investors to, like, commit not to invest in companies that extract fossil fuels. In some cases, that's, like, limited to just coal, or in some cases, it's, like, certain kinds of fossil fuels, and sometimes it's all fossil fuels, Um, but... That, like, is the big campaign sort of behind uh, climate change and banking. There's also, like, I mean, we'll talk about the broad approaches to ethical financing later, but, like, it's not just um, going free from fossil fuels. You can also specifically find institutions that will proactively um, take on environmentally friendly projects, or you can in, you can uh, participate in, like, investment funds that will actually support, like, environmental projects. We talked about carbon offsets, which I think we generally concluded were sort of like a scam. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They're one example of those. All right. That was the environment. Pretty quick and dirty because it's mostly about climate change, to be honest. All right. Social issues. Um, So social issues are the ones that are like connected to the well-being of people, um, although climate change does certainly affect people. But these are these are more about like the direct impacts of of industry on on societies and on human well-being. So banks have been targeted for financing companies that in various ways harm society. Can you think of like any like other divestment issues that might be social? 
Um, <laughs> I don't know. Were banks financing the Nazis? Probably. <laughs> yeah, almost certainly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I have I have no idea for modern for modern issues. No, I mean that's a good one. Um, I the tobacco industry is one that I think of. Yeah, that's right. And and they invest in guns, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So um, tobacco industry, gun producers, private prisons. There's like a long list oh, of private prisons. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, do you know what? This is all ringing a bell. I think you mentioned all of this in our very first episode. Like, what is ethical consumption? And I remember wanting to do an episode about all of those things, but. Banks investing in private prisons is just so mind-bogglingly fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for sure, I didn't. I didn't want to say much more about private prisons because you're, as you're right, we did. Um, we did mention that in episode one. Same with tobacco. If you haven't heard the episode, go back to it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> we stand by it. <laughs> we stand by it. But another, I wanted to draw attention to a couple of. Um, issues connected to, to banking that have specific banking specific campaigns around them. Um, and so one of those is the is your bank loaded campaign. And it basically grades banks based on their investment in firearms manufacturers. Uh, so I went on their website today and TD Bank received an F score. I didn't see any other Canadian banks on there. But um, I mean, it is a, an American based campaign. So that makes sense. Um, and basically, the organization asks for banks to do a number of things, but the like foremost among them is to divest from firearms companies until the U.S. government adopts adequate regulations. Um, so top companies also invest invested uh, 748 billion U.S. dollars in the nuclear weapons industry. That's not just banks, um, but there's a lot of money going into nuclear weapons. And so there's another campaign that I want to highlight called the Don't Bank on the Bomb campaign. And it is specifically targeted at um, reporting on the financial institutions that seek to profit from nuclear weapons producers. So uh, companies that produce nukes or nuke uh, delivery systems or like some component of that. So um, you can check out um, their list of who invests and who does not invest. I saw quite a number of uh like investment funds that are Canadian on the like who is definitely supporting nukes list. <laughs> That's crazy because if everyone just stopped support, like if you stop pouring money into those projects, then surely they wouldn't be able to be done, right? Well, I mean, I don't really know how the um, nuclear weapons industry works specifically, but I'd <laughs> imagine they're tied to um, like major weapons producers who in a lot of cases, like these are companies that also do a lot of other things and they also rely a lot on government contracts so like i don't know if you'd end nuclear weapons single-handedly if you got banks to stop investing in it but like it would make it a lot more difficult for these companies to operate and it would take away the benefit of producing nukes so they might stick to like other less world destroying forms of weapons <laughs> or they'll just like produce the contracts that their governments give them and just make the bare minimum i guess i don't know i guess i guess i don't know uh anyway <laughs> that's a campaign so if you care about um i don't know if you see yourself as anti-nuclear which i feel like most people do uh you can <laughs> check out the don't bank on the bomb campaign to make sure that you're not banking on the bomb. <laughs> All right. Third category is governance. And governance issues basically are things that connect to how a company itself operates. So 
In the other two contexts, it would be like financial institutions investing in a third party that's doing something bad. Um, For the governance issues that I'm highlighting, it's like the banks themselves doing something bad. So the first one, and this connects to our last episode, so it's very exciting, is uh, tax avoidance and tax evasion. Wait, wait, wait. Banks are avoiding paying taxes? Oh, yes, they are, for sure. What the fuck? (laughs) Shocked to know there's gambling going on in this establishment. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, um, just to highlight, in case you did not listen to the last episode, tax avoidance and tax evasion are massive public policy concerns. They're unfair, they increase inequality, and they make it really hard for governments to provide good public services. So it's like a thing you should care about. Um, And banks are some of the biggest tax avoiders, and they also help their clients avoid tax. Um, So Oxfam has a good report where they basically look at the use of tax havens by major European banks. I could not find anything comparable on Canada, and I think that might be because there are rules in the EU that force um, banks to report on tax uh, avoidance and evasion, whereas um, like we just don't have that, I don't think. So unfortunately... Data prevents us from getting mad at Canadian banks on this one. But probably not because they're not doing it. I think RBC is one of the big ones in the Panama Papers. So, <laughs> Yeah, I kind of, I uh, right before recording this, I was like, because our, our challenge was to figure out if who we bank with is evil. And boy, was that a tricky <laughs> like challenge. I was really struggling. I was getting very frustrated because I was like, surely they're evil, but like I can't understand any of this jargon. So <laughs> my last attempt was, hang on a second. Uh, and then I typed in a couple of bank names plus Panama Papers. And I was like, ah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other one that I wanted to highlight under governance issues is um, banking and gender. Uh, so I think it's it can be relevant to look at like governance issues to do with all forms of representation. But the one I was able to find information on is um, for banks specifically is on the gender gap. Um, Because banking is actually an industry with a much like disproportionately massive gender gap. This is kind of cool. I didn't know this, but in the UK, uh, companies have to report on their gender pay gap. Um, So they have to like tell you what they paid men and women. And according to those uh, reports, uh, finance firms pay the average the average man, 25% more than the average woman. So that's for like financial institutions. Um, And that is much higher than the 17% pay gap across most sectors. So yeah, Uh, if you're if you live in the UK, check out what the gender gap is at your bank, because they have to report on that. So you can find out if they have to report on it, then why wouldn't they fix it out of shame? (laughs) I don't know, man. I think it's like there there are sometimes like really complicated facts. I mean, like think about um think about our Operation Breadbasket um episode, right? And uh how just to recap people, that was an episode about um a civil rights era consumer and boycott movement that like basically it was trying to get companies that were owned locally to hire more black workers and to hire black workers in better jobs. One of the things that the activists involved in that found is that even for companies that were like more or less supportive, like they weren't shutting the door, they were agreeing to targets. They oftentimes didn't meet the targets because like 
genuinely, when there's systemic oppression, um, it's not always as easy as just saying, like, we have a policy of, like, equal hiring, right? You also have to do other things like worker training, mentorship, you know, it, it takes hard work. So that, I would imagine, is probably why. Also, consumers probably haven't said they care enough. So that's a thing we can actively change. <laughs> all right. So um, those are all sort of like, that's sort of like a broad overview of the kinds of ethical problems that banks are involved with and other financial institutions. But there actually is a big movement towards um, ethical banking and ethical finance. And there's a whole bunch of other buzzwords around that. Um, but it's a whole movement towards um, trying to infuse ethics more centrally in the decision-making processes of financial institutions. And uh, so I want to talk about like what that is and what kinds of ethical um, finance are out there. Um, and to just kind of explain, because it can be kind of like difficult to understand some of these things. There's a lot of buzzwords in, in, um, in I may think banking in general, but especially in ethical banking. So um, I just want to start by saying that, like, this is not a marginal thing. There's actually quite a lot of traction that ethical finance is getting. So I found a stat, for example, that says in 2018, there was a total of $12 trillion in U.S.-based assets managed um, using sustainable, responsible, and impact investing. So that's a huge amount of money. That's way more money than is going into... Um, that then has gone into to fossil fuels in the last year, right? Like two trillion versus twelve trillion. So, like, it is actually a huge industry: sustainable, responsible, and impact investing. So, that is something that's been massively growing. So, in 1995, less than one trillion dollars was in this sort of like bucket of responsible finance, um, and now it's it's like grown twelvefold, basically more than that even. And so, essentially, what that means is that today. About 26% of professionally managed financial assets are managed using some kind of sustainable, responsible, and impact investment. So a quarter of the financial assets that are out there have some kind of ethical criteria that's applied to them. Does that mean it's great? Not necessarily. A lot of the times it's greenwash. But I, I think that's like real progress. Um, it went from um, like about a decade or two ago, like um, social finance, responsible finance, it has various labels, but it was kind of seen as this really like plucky niche thing that was never going to work. Um, and now it's become a big part of mainstream finance, which is something that I think is important not to overlook. It's the oat milk of the banking industry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's growing every year, just like oat milk. So, <laughs> <laughs> so social finance, um, I'll just give you a definition because I think that's important. So it's basically the allocation of capital, so money, that is used primarily for social and environmental returns, as well as in some cases a financial return. And depending on the financial product or the type of ethical finance, um, the sort of ethical versus financial balance can be very different. Some of them are almost entirely ethics-based. Some of them are almost entirely money-based um, and just have like an ethical criteria. And there's a lot in between as well. So we, you are, we are talking about very different things within this category. So it's essentially like a big umbrella for a lot of different approaches in which finance is used to advance environmental, social, or governance objectives, which is why I categorized those problems before like that. 
So you'll often hear ESG objectives. That just means environmental, social, or governance. So if you ever hear that term, that's what it means. So ethical finance is a big category. Um, there are a lot of different issues, as we sort of alluded to before, that you might want to consider in terms of the ethical content of your finance. So when you think about environmental categories, it's does it advance, advance conservation, sustainability, or decarbonization? For social, does it improve the rights, dignity, and living conditions of people? Does it make society better? And governance, are responsible practices being used? How transparent, equitable, democratic, and accountable is the business itself that's being invested in? Uh, when we talk about ethical finance, there are sort of three broad approaches that you can categorize them into. So the first one is a positive approach, and that means you're actively investing in good things. So you could be funding like pollution management or tree planting. So carbon offsets are a kind of positive ethical finance. It could also be a lot of the times there's something called impact investment, which um, can oftentimes be financing for nonprofits to do good things. Um, and it can be there are various ways you can structure that. But that kind of thing is a positive approach to ethical financing because it aims to fund something that's good. Uh, then there is exclusion or divestment, which basically thinks about it the opposite way. So rather than funding good things, they're not funding bad things. I feel like that is the bare minimum, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's something that like, deserves a gold star. <laughs> Look, we just went through all the banks are investing in all these things. So like tobacco, <laughs> fossil fuels, firearms, private prisons, like... Divestment might seem like a bare minimum or like this exclusion approach, but really it's not a standard that anyone's meeting. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. This is why I say there's such like, there's so many things encapsulated in this term. Uh, the third sort of general approach to ethical finance is a holistic approach. So it's where the company that's um, managing your finances is looking holistically at the ethics of companies when they're investing your money. So they might look at a range of different environmental, social, and governance uh, factors and sort of weigh that in deciding what to invest in. So rather than just posit like than just um, including good things or just excluding bad things, they're holistically making decisions based on like the balance of good and also other factors like rate of return. Because obviously, like even if something's very good. If it is obviously not going to work as a business idea, you still probably don't want to invest in it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> of those three categories, exclusion or divestment is still the most common kind of ethical finance strategy. So like a large portion of that $12 trillion figure, um, a lot of that is in sort of that negative exclusion. So the pledge not to fund for fossil fuels, the pledge not to invest in tobacco companies, things like that. We can also think about ethical finance in terms of like how they approach ethics, so how they're thinking about it. So you can think about ethical finance um, as like if you're thinking in terms of a personal moral compass, so like a person might have an approach to ethical finance. And then responsible investing is sort of like you're focused on financial value, but you have certain constraints on what you're going to do. So you set up certain rules. Um, and then impact is where you're sort of, you're thinking about what the outcomes your money can generate are and the implications um, 
of like investing in one place versus another. So there, rather than thinking about like your personal pocketbook or trying to make money, but setting aside rules, you're thinking about your, your assets in terms of like how you can leverage good outcomes. And I mean, that last one is something that it's a lot harder for people who don't have like Scrooge McDuck money to, to do. So um, <laughs> uh, it's talked about a lot in philanthropy research, but like probably not of all that much practical impact on like our daily lives. At least not mine. <laughs> well, people with Scrooge McDuck money are usually evil anyways and aren't really that interested in <laughs> financing ethical endeavors. So I mean, I think a lot of um a lot of wealthy people pursue philanthropy not just as a like a tax write-off strategy. There is like being a billionaire is complicated. I don't think like there that ethical billionaires exist, but I don't think that means that billionaires are evil, if that makes sense. Um, it just like you can't you can't become a billionaire without a system that's evil in some way, and society shouldn't allow it to happen. But that doesn't mean that like somebody's not funding like like that they're not really thinking about um, their philanthropy in a certain way. They might be impact investing for totally genuine reasons. Um, I don't want to like rag on that. I don't know. I also feel like the number of billionaires that are investing in good causes and not and not just doing it for how it makes them look is very few. I can think of two off the top of my head, you know, and <laughs> well, most of the ones that are doing it for ethical reasons, like they don't um, put their names out there that much. Um, so That's you probably true. won't have heard of them. But yeah, I totally agree. It's really like morally complicated to even have people with that amount of money. I don't think it should exist as a public policy rule. I just like I kind of get awkward when we're in the territory of like personally demonizing all rich people. We can do that to Jeff Bezos. That's fine with me. (laughs) (laughs) But like, um, you know, (laughs) the tax systems, not people. Anyway, that was a whole side. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's like a a whole bunch of things that um, social finance or ethical finance has been used to address. So anything from environmental concerns to board and hiring diversity, issues like apartheid in South Africa, the Vietnam War, human rights, animal rights, labor rights, abortion, tobacco, gun violence, like the list goes on. Finance, because it touches everything, um, activists, when they campaign, think about it sometimes in their campaigns. Um, And so there have been a lot of targets of ethical finance. One thing that I think is important to know is the role of institutional investors in ethical finance. And essentially what that means is like they're organizations that have a set amount of money that they have to invest somewhere. So, I mean, corporations oftentimes fall within this category, but you can also think of like school boards. They have a a plot of money that they have to invest and get a small rate of return on philanthropic foundations, um, faith groups. So churches often have um, endowments that they spend. And actually, um, certain Christian churches have been really um, active in the fossil fuel movement. So they're huge on that. Uh, There's also like, if you're like in a labor union, a labor union, pension funds, nonprofits, like there's a whole range of institutional investors. And they're actually sort of the ones that are pioneering these, um, these new instruments, because they're sort of more willing to take risks than an individual might be with their retirement savings. You know, you can you can screw up and not get your rate of return 
for a couple of years as a foundation because you exist in perpetuity to spend money anyway. But like, if I lose all my money before retirement, I'm fucked, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Risk is just different under those contexts. So one of the big debates in ethical finance is like, does it work? Um, And within that, usually the conversation is sort of about this debate um, about mission versus returns. So it's this debate about like, to what extent is ethical finance motivated by moral concerns, um, rather than financial decisions that are shaped by evolving conceptions of what risk means. So just I'll give you an example of that, because it it was kind of a complicated explanation. Um, Have you ever heard about the carbon bubble before? No, no. Um, So the carbon bubble is it's basically this idea that Oil and gas and other fossil fuels, um, it's actually a super risky investment because as societies transition to decarbonization and as climate change gets worse, it is likely that like you'll have a bunch of stranded assets that you won't be able to sell 20 or 30 years down the line. Well, we're seeing that already, like with uh, yes, with the oil industry in Alberta, how, oh, it's going to bounce back. It's like, guys, I, I don't know that it will. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the carbon bubble, um, it's been talked about for uh, quite a while. Um, but it's basically that idea that rather than seeing oil and gas as a safe bet, actually, they're hugely like oil and gas is hugely overvalued. And so if you're investing in it, that's actually like a shitty investment from a financial perspective, not taking ethical considerations into account at all. And so as the concept of the carbon bubble has started to become more and more popular recently, um, we've seen more and more companies move towards fossil fuel divestment. And so that prompts a big debate, like all of these groups that are divesting from fossil fuels, like, are they doing it for moral reasons? Are they doing it for financial reasons? And does it matter? Like, does does that even, should we care? I don't care. I don't care at all. Just divest <laughs> and then reinvest into the things that will make money in the future, like solar panels and <laughs> green building materials. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the broader question, like in one sense, it doesn't really matter whether the motive is ethical or financial, as long as you can get people to adopt these tools, because Like climate change doesn't care whether you're doing it for moral reasons or not. But in a broader sense, like if ethical investment is really only driven by financial concerns, that really constrains how effective it can be as a tool of social change. But if, on the other hand, um, if ultimately the objective is about making money, then you should basically, you shouldn't bother with finance. You should just be targeting other companies um, so that banks have a different financial calculus, right? Because if moral considerations don't matter at all, then there's a very limited number of issues on which you can get banks to change, and those are already going to be in their interests. So you probably don't need to campaign. They're just going to follow their own rational choice, right? So like, you have a much narrower view of what ethical investment can do if, that's, if you think moral considerations never matter. But if, on the other hand, you can convince consumers and institutional investors and ultimately financial institutions to genuinely accept some trade-off between their rate of exchange and ethical values, that's a huge possible source of change, right? So the debate does matter to a certain degree. I think the jury is still out on to what extent um, these things are financially driven versus morally driven, probably depends on the context. But it's, it's a thing that is hugely talked about in terms of uh, ethical finance. 
Well, the cynic in me seems to lean towards <laughs> it's financially driven. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in some cases it is. Uh, I think to a certain degree, you can't really separate the two, right? Like, take the carbon bubble, for example. Like, yes, companies are making these calculations based, in a lot of cases, I would imagine, mostly on thinking that carbon is a bad investment. But they're doing that based on all these ideas about, like, what's going to happen to the world and like what's wrong with the world. And all of those things have some bearing on like moral claims that people are making. And ultimately I think people just do things when they're expected, you know, if it becomes really faux pas to invest in like fossil fuels or tobacco or like ice detention center funders, you know, like once that becomes an expectation, um, I think people do it more out of habit than like an actual calculation of like how much money they're going to get. So eh, I think that happens sometimes. Well, that's a marginally more optimistic view than <laughs> mine, I guess. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So section number three, last section of this podcast, how can people who don't have Scrooge McDuck money approach ethical finance? Everybody uses money. We exist in a capitalist society. How can we incorporate ethical practices into our financial decisions? I mean, gosh, we could go on for so long about different options. There are so many financial products that I have never thought about, dreamed about, like in any way considered. <laughs> like we could have, probably have a whole episode on ethical mortgages. And I think I mention it quickly in this section because I fundamentally barely know what a mortgage is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah, so I'm only going to talk about um, sort of two main things. One is how you choose an ethical bank um, or how to go about choosing what bank you want to bank with. Um, and then secondly, how to choose a financial advisor. So I, that's also not something that I have, but I imagine like a fair amount of people have financial advisors. So we'll talk about that. Um, all right. So are there ethical banks? Thoughts? <laughs> oh, um, credit unions, maybe? Yeah, that's more or less what I came to. <laughs> my my boyfriend used to work for a credit union. So he kind of explained, he knew we were doing this episode on banks. And I was like, can you explain to me what a credit union is? And so my understanding is that the people who bank with a credit union are also the the shareholders. Yeah, let's not jump the gun because we will talk about credit unions. But I first I want to talk about bank banks. <laughs> okay, phew, good. Because I think everything I just said was wrong. And it's better if you go with what you've written down. <laughs> no, I don't think it was wrong. Um, you're, you're right. I just think it needs more explanation. Thank God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, I think you're right. Generally, um, I mean, for reasons we talked about at the beginning, it's hard to imagine what, how you could get to a commercial bank or even a credit union, to be honest, that is making ethical decisions all the time. Because these are groups that are investing in all kinds of projects that are in a lot of cases, like not proximate to them, you know, and they're happening all over the world and a whole bunch of industries. So I think it would be really, really difficult to have a bank that you could truly say was ethical. Having said that, the differences between banks matter a lot, you know, so it is worth checking out how ethical your bank is and deciding on one that fits your values. So the first thing that you can do is to look into how ethical your bank is. 
So if like there's a particular issue that you heard about in the episode that mattered to you the most, you can check out one of the campaigns we mentioned earlier and um, see how your bank is doing on that. I had a really hard time finding what my bank's investing in. Honestly, I was like, yeah. oh, where does my bank s- spend their money? And I I could not find it. I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, it's really, really hard. Um, some options that you have, one is to, if you're, especially if you're in the UK, Ethical Consumer has a rating on banks. Um, so it's from a British perspective. There are some international banks on there, but like, I didn't see any Canadian banks. Um, so unfortunately, it wasn't super relevant for me. But they do a really good job of like laying out which banks are scoring the best holistically. And then you can kind of like look in and say, okay, the environment's most important to me. So which banks are doing better on that? Stuff like that. So that's one tool that you can use. Another option is to ask your bank directly about their their ethical practices. So especially if there's like one or two issues that matter to you, you can ask things like, has the bank divested from fossil fuels? Have they divested from tobacco does the bank apply any ethical criteria on its investments? Are there specific financial products that you can access that actually do use ethical criteria of some kind? Because, um, I mean, ultimately, like, most of us pay bank fees, right? Like, it's a service that we're purchasing. Banks are making money off of the, like, off of our money. You know, they're using it to make more money for themselves, much in excess of our interest rates. So you should feel really welcome to go to banks and to ask them um, what their ethical practices are. And they should they should help you out with that. And if they don't, maybe it's an indication that you shouldn't bank with them. And going along with that, if you do decide to switch banks for ethical reasons, like be sure to tell them, you know. Um, so if you if you're curious, um, ethical consumer has a template letter that you can use as like the basis for sending like that. Dear Royal Bank of whatever, like. I'm not investing in you for ethical reasons. If you don't want to write that whole email, there's like a template that you can use. So many large commercial banks rate pretty similarly on ethical issues. I mean, we we talked earlier about um, like fossil fuel investment and found that all of the top five Canadian banks were pretty close to one another on the list. Um, so that can make it really difficult to decide between them. And that means that you may want to go to a different bank. Uh, a different kind of bank entirely. So credit unions. So Kyla very, uh, very fortunately mentioned it right at the beginning. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, you were saying that credit unions are basically the shareholders um, for themselves. That's pretty true. Um, so basically, credit unions are financial cooperatives. Um, so that means that they're owned and they're operated by their members. So. Rather than like a big commercial bank that you have, they are run by a board of directors that's um, elected by shareholders. Shareholders make decisions based on how many shares they have. So it's like a system of proportional representation where the extent to which you're represented is directly proportional to how how many shares you have, right? So if you're like Joe Big Bucks, you're going to get more representation under that system. Whereas if you have like one share in a company, like your vote's going to be drowned out by others, right? Credit unions don't operate in this way. They are cooperatives. And so they operate under like a system of, you have to sort of buy in to have a membership. You become a member of the, the credit union. And then you have one vote as being yourself the member. So every member gets one vote. Doesn't matter how much money you have 
in that particular bank. So they're a lot more democratic in that way. The other thing that's different about credit unions is that they are nonprofits. So they're like nonprofit distributing. Basically, rather than creating profits for shareholders, um, any money that the credit union makes has to go to one of three things. One, it can be invested back into the organization. Two, it can be distributed to members. Or three, it can be donated somewhere. So those are all options. And the decisions about what credit unions do on things like that are made by the board of directors who is elected by credit union members. So it is for that reason that credit unions are sort of seen as a community-focused approach to day-to-day banking. Um, so, And they're also seen as sort of being more focused on the needs of the members rather than being profit-focused because organizationally that's how they're set up. They're accountable to their membership. A credit union does not necessarily have any ethical investment practices. That's like not inherently a thing that it has to do. But because of the way they're set up, credit unions are more likely than commercial banks to incorporate ethical criteria into their decision making. So you'll often find that credit unions um, have policies on responsible investing. They have ethical investment funds. They're divested from like fossil fuels or something like that. Um, In most cases, like at least some form of ethical investment is happening in a credit union. But of course, it depends from credit union to credit union. You have to look into the ones in your area to see. Canada has about 700 credit unions and um, people's banks, which is uh, used more in Quebec. There's a, a lot of options out there for you. They really do vary in size, though. Some of them are quite like small and community focused, whereas others might be sort of on the larger side. None of them are going to be as big as like a big bank. Like none of them are too big to fail. Big, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... But they can vary in size. Some of them can be pretty, pretty sizable. So to join a credit union, basically what you do is you buy a share in the credit union. Um, In some cases, there might be other requirements. So you might need to be like a resident of a certain area in order to join the credit union. But otherwise, you basically just like buy your membership and and you're in. Uh, Credit unions offer like the downside of credit unions is that they have a narrower selection when it comes to like credit products. So you might not have as many like points cards options and things like that. And also, usually with credit unions, the online banking is worse um, just because they don't have they're like the economies of scale. Right. Um, And also because they're they're member focused. uh, They don't they don't have the resources to plunk into like expensive apps a lot of the time. So you may have to put up with slightly worse online banking. But on the other hand, they typically have higher interest rates on their savings accounts. So you'll usually get a better rate um, for having money with them. They usually have lower account fees and um, they're typically rated to provide better customer service than commercial banks. So there are some trade-offs you have to consider, but um, a credit union does have like some advantages. As well, um, because credit unions operate democratically, I do think that's sort of like an inherent reason to prefer them over um, commercial banks, right? Like, I don't know. I just don't like the system of shareholder governance. I like the idea of one member, one vote. I also like that the like board of directors on a credit union is volunteer run and it's like elected. I don't know. I just think it's nice. <laughs> is your is your money just as safe with a credit union as it is with a big bank? I think is the main thing people would be wondering. Yeah, so like ordinarily, um, 
It depends on, like, I don't know what the legislation is everywhere in the world. I don't even really know the Canadian legislation that well, but credit unions are required to, um, like, have their um, their deposits insured and stuff like that. So, like, under an ordinary circumstance, you should be fine. Um, if there was, like, a massive calamity to the financial system, they're probably not going to be as high on the list of uh, bailouts, so they may go under. But they still, like... Deposits are still insured, so I don't know. I would say like you're you're not really at that much risk um, of losing at least like your base deposit, unless a catastrophe happens. In which case, it doesn't really honestly, matter who you're banking with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So if you are looking for a sort of like an above and beyond uh, financial institution, even beyond just picking any credit union. You can also look at the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, or GABV. Uh, That is a network of banks that are basically working to have a more transparent um, and, like, ethical banking industry. So, essentially, like, if you're interested, you can look on the GABV website and see, like, are there financial institutions in my area that have committed to being ethical banks? So I looked at that for Canada, and there are three, and they're all, well, two of them are credit unions. So there's Van City, which is in your area, um, and then Kindred Credit Union, which I think is somewhere in Ontario. And then there was like, um, there was a solidarity fund within Desjardins Bank. So Desjardins Bank is not a member of GABV, but their particular fund is. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Banking is so confusing. I know. My goodness. But like, (laughs) not a lot of options within this tool, at least not yet. It is still fairly new. But there are some options. So like, I mean, for you, Van City might be a good option. They, um, like, I believe they're a credit union still. Let me just make sure. They are. My boyfriend just switched to them. So, and he loves it. He's been trying to get me on it. So maybe I will. Van City, uh, fund this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I bank with Tangerine, so I was looking to see if they're ethical, and they're pretty low main, like low profile. There's nothing big that came out from them, but Scotiabank owns them, and Scotiabank is yikes. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you want to tell us about your challenge? I did not do one. <laughs> but... Yeah, well, I mean, your the challenge was to do research about banks, and I feel like you have more than done your share. <laughs> I I struggled with this one because the the challenge was to see, like, how ethical is your bank? And I just came up against wall after wall after wall. I couldn't see where they were spending their money. Um, When I tried, I even went to their website and I was like, okay, you tell me what you think you're doing. And under their, like, sustainability section, it was basically just one sentence that said, oh, because we don't have physical branches – we are better for the environment and for our clients' pocketbooks. And I was like, that is some weak shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's like in the carbon offsets episode where we're talking about Ryanair pitching their like shitty small seats as being more carbon friendly. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, I think you're missing the bigger point. Some spin master, but bare and tangerine. <laughs> yeah, so it was all pretty fluffy. What I really like about Tangerine, I mean, it is true that they do take up less of an environmental footprint physically because they don't have branches. uh, And because they they don't have the branches, they kind of justify having no fees, which this is an actual this is actually a frustrating issue for me having banked now in three or four different countries. Canada is the only country I've ever banked in where we actually pay bank fees. 
And and when I tell <laughs> other countries, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like $10 to bank, you know, for and they're like, what? But they're using your money to make money for themselves. Like asking for a $10 monthly fee is just extra greedy. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm, it is. So like morally. But this is also the country that puts up with like $100 a month cell phone bills. So. Yeah. And let's not even talk about our airline prices. So like, <laughs> but like morally, I refuse to pay bank fees if I don't have to, because now I see that we're all just suckers for doing it. So I, I switched to Tangerine like a decade ago and I've been really happy with them. But yeah, if they're, I don't know, investing in oil and gas, then that is shitty. And I don't like that. So, but it sucks because I actually love my bank. So I, I still have some more work to do on this challenge, but I am leaning towards switching to Van City. So that might be the ultimate end for this challenge for me, which is kind of a big <laughs> one, actually. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about it too. Cause, um, so I have not critically assessed banking at any point in my life. I was given a bank account at like, I think maybe 13. Um, My parents set it up and I've had that bank account. It's like switched types of accounts as I became an adult, but otherwise I've not thought about it at all. Certainly not in like an ethical frame. So this like researching for this episode was really eye-opening, I think. Yeah, because I think a lot of people just have the bank that they've used forever and it's it's the same as every other bank for the most part. So why bother switching? I switched because I was like, I'm paying fees and I shouldn't be. Bah. But that's not like that's not like ethical. That was just me being like standing my ground on something that I think is stupid. <laughs> Absolutely. Still fighting the good fight, I think. <laughs> I think so too, but I should have been thinking more about, you know, the environment. <laughs> Well, Van City sounds like a good option. I swear we're not funded by them. Uh, all right. Not uh, yet. <laughs> <laughs> we will take your money, Van City. <laughs> now we've, we've talked about choosing like a bank. Um, some people use a financial advisor um, to like plan out their retirement savings and various things like that. So I thought I would talk a little bit about um, – how you can incorporate ethical factors into the decision about who your financial advisor is going to be. I personally do not have a financial advisor, nor have I ever had one. So sorry. I have never needed one. I mean, they help with taxes and stuff. (laughs) My taxes aren't complicated. Like (laughs) I have no assets. (laughs) No, one T4. Or on <laughs> on busy years, you know, three T4s, done. <laughs> Absolutely. But, like, a lot of people, especially people in, like, Gen X and, like, I mean, even millennials now are getting older. People have more money. Um, so people are, like, like finan- a lot of people, I imagine, have financial planners. So, like, let's talk about how to do that ethically. Uh, you can start with, like, a nice Google search, honestly. Just Google search financial planner or financial advisor and then, like, socially responsible, green, ESG, sustainable investing, like any of the nice buzzwords that you want. And usually that should actually be pretty good for you because you should be able to come up with um, financial advisors in your area that specifically market themselves as ethical investors using one of those keywords. That's important um, because if you're looking at a financial advisor that doesn't advertise ethical investing in any way, that is probably like not a thing they do at all. On the other hand, though, it does not necessarily mean that a 
like a firm is going to be ethical if they've just listed ethical investment on their website. You have to dig beyond that. Um, companies might try to engage in like ethics washing or greenwashing by marketing themselves as socially responsible. And then like there may not be that much substance to it. So there are a few tools that you can look at that we'll link to in the research notes. Um, basically just to give you a guide on um, how you might want to look at it. Um, what are some lists of, of ethical investment funds and things like that. Um, so like there are tools out there that you can find to look at it. You just need to do a little bit of research before you pick your, your financial advisor. And like you can have a conversation with the financial advisor and like tell them that ethics are important to you. Ask them what your options are. If they have options for you, look into how good they are. If they don't, that's probably a sign that they're not a good fit for you. Um, you can also like yourself look at different um ethical investment funds. Uh, so ethical consumer has a rating on this, but there's also, um, there's a list of socially conscious index funds that Forbes has put out. Um, I don't like a lot of the article around it because it's too pro finance, but <laughs> the list itself is fine. <laughs> All right. So there you go. Find yourself an ethical financial advisor. Two other um, tips for people that are looking to incorporate ethics into their money practices. One option that I don't think is a great option, but it is possible, is um, doing your own ethical investing. So you can personally invest in ethical companies by buying shares. Um, I don't advise this for a large sum of money unless you're an expert and or willing to spend a lot of time on it, but it's a thing you can do if you want to. So maybe that's your new life's ambition. Go to it. Uh, the second one, I think this is really important, is use your voice. So even if you don't have personally very much money, if you're like me, you don't have Scrooge McDuck money, but you're still probably a member of at least one organization that has significant financial assets. And like getting that organization to make ethical financial practices, like that can make a huge deal. Um, so it could be your pension fund. It could be your local school board. It could be your university. It could be a faith group you belong to. There are a whole bunch of organizations that like have money they're sitting on and investing in. And in most cases, they're not doing that much about ethical investment. So you can get involved with that organization. Sometimes there may be campaigns already going on to make your organizations ethical investors. Definitely, if you're a member of a university, there's a movement somewhere on your campus getting your, your university's endowment to divest from fossil fuels. Um, if anyone finds a university where that's not the case, like I'll buy you dinner because definitely, definitely every <laughs> university has one of these. Just you can join that organization. Um, but if you're in a, like a smaller organization or an organization where there's not sort of as much activism around issues that you care about, you can try to um, like influence that decision making within the organization yourself. Um, you know, bring it up in a meeting sometime. Um, oftentimes, um, it's just like starting that first conversation that can get change to happen. And uh, ultimately, like by getting more of these institutional investors to participate in ethical finance, you can grow the range of products that are available, which in turn makes it so much easier for everybody, um, like local consumers at a bank or big banks that like need to be pulled in the right direction to make ethical choices. So in this case, it's not yell at your member of parliament. Um, I guess it's more on the like, join a community and like the annoying side <laughs> <laughs> or yell at your boss <laughs> or yell at your boss. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's all I have on, on money. 
Wow, I learned a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the amount of research you did on this one. I know it was a really difficult one. But I know you were also really excited, so I don't feel so bad about it. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. It was very different from most of the episodes that we've done, I think. If anybody wants to correct us on anything that we said or add depth to what we said, because we, like, Krista did a lot of research, but our overall knowledge is very surface level. So if you have more to add to this conversation, please do hit us up. Uh, we are pretty good at answering tweets on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. So the next time you hear from us, we are going to be talking about something a little bit more festive, where we have a Christmas <laughs> episode coming up. So we'll catch you then. What are we talking about next week? Do you know? It might be the Christmas episode, straight up. Holy shit. <laughs>